This is The Legal Impact, a podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD and graduate programs? Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or hosts and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire and UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead, and today I'm joined by Professor Lucy Hodder, Director of the Health Law and Policy Programs. How are you? I'm great, AJ. Good to see you. I'm glad to be on. All right. So we are going to talk about two different topics today, but we're going to start off right now with continuous Medicaid enrollment. That is officially over. This has been something that was implemented during the COVID-19 public health emergency. Uh, we're There's a whole can of worms that could go down when it comes to the public health emergency. We're going to focus specifically on continuous Medicaid enrollment. So at a high level, what did what did it mean when this was enacted? Right. Well, this was originally part of the public health emergency when 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 the public health emergency was declared, there were some changes that allowed for anybody enrolled in Medicaid as of a certain date, the beginning of um, 2020, to remain enrolled in Medicaid, except for really rare circumstances. So real voluntary termination, move it out of state. Um, but for the most part, states, in exchange for getting an enhanced federal match, so more dollars to help take care of people's health in the Medicaid program. In exchange for that, the states had to keep people continuously enrolled. People did not have to engage in the annual redetermination process, which is required under Medicaid to affirm ongoing eligibility. So this went on and on and on, and a lot of people were and able to access enhanced coverage in whatever eligibility category they came on to Medicaid in. So if you were eligible for the Granted Advantage program, you stayed in the Granted Advantage program. If you were eligible for long-term services and supports, you stayed in that eligibility category without having to reaffirm your eligibility because of that deal that the Fed struck with states. What was the goal of having it happen? Is it just to kind of take some of the the uh, workload off of local um, like HHS departments and things like that, which are already quite busy with the public health emergency? I think it was much broader than that, AJ. I think the, the original goal, and remember this was a prior administration, the original goal was to make sure if people were getting sick with COVID, they had health insurance coverage. Um, and they were able to access, remember, telehealth services for mental health and physical health. Um, it was just to make sure we had that support for people during the public health emergency and to assure, ensure there wasn't this extra amount of disruption in people's lives. If they'd originally been eligible for Medicaid, instead of having them churn through commercial insurance or on and off based on because they lost their job, Etc. There was so much disruption during the PHE. It was just a stability factor that allowed for um, much more predictability in the insurance markets during this public health emergency process and allowed people to access the kind of care they needed, depending on uh, what type of insurance they have. So remember when we also during the public health emergency had telehealth, made telehealth available. Some states and the feds also made telehealth services paid at the same rate as uh, in-person services. A lot of the things that happened during the public health emergency allowed the healthcare system to manage people's health in different ways because of the nature of COVID 
and how sick people got with COVID and because of the need for the healthcare system to respond to those sick people, sick people and take care of others in a way that was consistent with some of the restrictions to try and get rid of the spread of COVID. So it was one of those many things that determined that. I think ultimately New Hampshire ended up doing pretty well. We had a lot more people on Medicaid, but the federal support helped support our Medicaid program as a whole. The end of the public health emergency is now happening, I think, May 11th. The states really did say, hey, look, we have we need some predictability. If we're going to return our Medicaid programs to regular operations and people are going to have to start redetermining every year, we need time. We need to get back to normal and we've got to have a date certain. So that's what happened in a recent congressional action where they actually set the date that Medicaid had to return to regular operations as of April 1. Now, the good news is New Hampshire has been planning diligently for this and has been a leader, in fact, among states in getting ready for this transition and been very diligent along the way to continue as best as possible having people get their addresses in, get their information in, redetermine if they can. So when this date, April 1 hit, as many people as possible had confirmed their ongoing eligibility. Certainly not everybody. We're seeing a number of people who are having to transition to other coverage. Uh, New Hampshire structured their transition so that the people who were most likely to be eligible for other coverage were transitioned first. So people who were ineligible due to higher income or age, so might be eligible for Medicare um, or had aged out of kids and might be able to go on parents' coverage um, or uh, return to Medicaid in a different eligibility category. Those people have been transitioned first. We've gotten incredible help from the Navigator program, which is tremendous. I hope we keep it because we have money now in the state from the feds to support people who are dedicated solely to answering people's questions about their health insurance. They can navigate them to the marketplace where people can get subsidized coverage, which in New Hampshire is really helpful. We have um, significantly affordable coverage on the marketplace due to the subsidies. Um, And the navigators can help with that. Navigators can also help uh, with people who have questions about their Medicaid coverage. And we have um, health assist, um, Health Market Connect, as well as First Choice Services, who are both helping, and I hope you put their website and their telephone numbers on our website because it's an incredible resource for people. And I also have linked to healthcare.gov, which is the the marketplace, which is very helpful and lists all these different resources are also available on there. I I mean, what are some, some big takeaways after seeing such an extended amount of time with people being on on Medicaid? Are there any lessons learned from that? Like, like the big thing politically is we need to get more people on Medicaid. We need to expand it so that we have a a single payer sort of uh, system or an option to, to be on the market. I mean, did this end up being a dry run for anything in the future, do you think, for healthcare reform? No, I don't think this this provision during COVID had anything to do with a single payer system. I think um, I think that the uh, Medicaid support provided a really great resource for a public health program to continue to to provide care without having the churn that's typical in the Medicaid program. So I think the one thing we did learn is that 
people access better care when they're not going on and off their healthcare program. That's for sure. Um, we also did learn that our basic system of health insurance coverage where people have employer-sponsored care, some fully funded, some self-funded, the feds can regulate through ERISA the self-funded plans, but not the fully insured, which have to be regulated by the state, you know, Medicare, Medicaid. We do have a complicated health insurance program. So trying to get something consistently done is difficult, but we did it. Um, I would say that that what we realized is that having a strong Medicaid program and an innovative Medicaid program, which we have in New Hampshire, with Medicaid expansion, which was a hugely important category of coverage for people who were, especially, you know, North Country, rural areas where people were uh, dropping their salaries and, and, and compensation during COVID because of a lot of the things we had to do to protect ourselves from COVID, it was a really hugely important thing for families to have uh, coverage available. And it kind of, I think, raised a lot more awareness in, for the general public also with regards to what exactly health insurance looks like. Because everyone, the, the general assumption is you just get it through your employer. But guess what? When the entire economy kind of <laughs> go, goes into the fan, so to say, it, 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 it's, it's very, uh, it raises like many questions with regards to how we pay for various services and what resources are available out there. Absolutely. And one of the things we also learn is that having that um, coverage helps connect to other services. So. Yeah. Uh, we end up being able to map together what supports anybody needs or any family needs uh, during a crisis like this. And you know, during everyday life, we know that the mental health issues have been really skyrocketing, especially amongst youth. And access to supports in schools has been a big push of the Medicaid program. And access to mental health and substance use treatment has been something the Medicaid program has done well, exceptionally well, to try and support those services. Never enough, especially when one in three people has a diagnosis of mental illness, never enough. But well, we've really seen that that continuous coverage was was critical in that component. The good news is we're seeing that people are navigating. So there's lifeboats for people and the navigators are a huge part of that. So getting people to their employer-sponsored coverage, if that's what they're eligible for, for Medicare, if that's what they're eligible for, again, marketplace coverage. And we have special enrollment periods. So hopefully people won't get lost in the transition. What's really hard is everyone has to be reaching out to friends, family, constituents, community, because lots of people have moved. People aren't used to filling out the information even though there's lots of online access and in-person access to help, not everyone, given the struggles of life, has that at the top of their list. Yep, definitely. And if you're one of these individuals that was in continuous enrollment, definitely check out nhez.nh.gov, which is a great resource. And in addition to the navigators, if you're not sure what your next steps are, which once again, we'll put in the episode description at law.unh.edu slash podcast. All right, let's move over. I want to be I want to touch on this because it's such a super important subject for health policy in the state of New Hampshire, which is hospital mergers, which we're going to try and condense as much as possible. This is probably a huge thing that could be an all day conference to discuss. Uh, but but overall, 
all, the, there's been many instances, especially in New Hampshire, where, where hospitals are, are merging together, large organizations are scooping up smaller hospitals. Is this a trend you're, that is specific to a rural state like New Hampshire? Is this something that's more nationwide? It's nationwide. It's been particularly endemic in New Hampshire. You know, if you look at our map, we, we've tracked the, the activity amongst hospitals over the past, you know, 10, 15 years. Almost every hospital has combined with another one. Some of them have combined and gotten divorced, um, but almost every single one has combined. And we have seen in the past, you know, seven, eight years, a huge increase in the number of New Hampshire hospitals who are now owned um, or parented, as I say, in the nonprofit world, you're parented by an out-of-state health system, which, you know, oftentimes sounds good. It can mean access to specialty services with a unified health record. It can add to some conveniences in some specialty lines of care but it also means that your community hospital is no longer necessarily a community hospital. It's it's driven and decisions are made at a much higher level. Um, so, you know, that doesn't mean good or bad. It just is completely changing, completely changing the face of healthcare in New Hampshire. And we're a very small state. So I think we're gonna wake up in a few years and think, what happened? And what was our plan? And what did we want to accomplish with this? Or did we just let it all happen? So, you know, I think I think it's a real change and a real shift. Some of it is necessitated by sort of hospital financial demographics, the the risks that honestly it was not COVID. <laughs> COVID yeah. just uh brought to light some of the underlying health disparities and system disparities that have been plaguing our system. We have um, enhanced specialty services, which are expensive and take lots of years of training and lots of years of expertise, and everybody can't pull it off. So if you can, you know, it's one thing to have primary care and an emergency room at your hospital with the ability to send real trauma down the road, but to pull off all the specialty services that you need to operate an acute care hospital or even a rural critical access hospital is really hard. Um, so, you know, what we're seeing is a lot of takeovers and um, just to, to rattle off a few, um, Mass General Hospital partners, um, it's now um, Mass General Brigham, big multi-billion dollar Massachusetts health system, teaching hospital system now operates Wentworth Douglas. And um, they've also established a site in Southern New Hampshire, a big ambulatory site. Um, HCA, which is a for-profit hospital system, now owns Frisbee Memorial, as well as Parkland Medical Center and Portsmouth Regional Hospital. Um, we have Tufts right now we have pending in our, before our, um, charitable trust unit, a number of transactions. Uh, we have Exeter Health Resources, who's trying again for a marriage, um, this time to Beth Israel Leahy Health, which will bring 
get another out-of-state hospital system into New Hampshire. We have a proposed transaction between Valley Regional Hospital and Dartmouth-Hitchcock Health. Remember Dartmouth-Hitchcock and Granite One. We're trying to merge, that's Catholic Medical Center and its progeny. We're trying to merge before COVID and during COVID, it really um, stalled and ended up uh, not getting final approval or uh, reaching agreement or fruition on that one. So a lot going on. It, big big metrics that I'd say most consumers would care about on this one is either health out, outcome metrics and, and the cost of service. It, like, are there any, is there any real data at a macro level to show that this is helping at all with either of those things? So what's interesting in New Hampshire is we stopped tracking that. We used to look at new services, cost of new services, cost of new construction, and the impact on community access, quality, affordability of care, we don't do any of that anymore. So we don't do any analysis about the ultimate impact of these transactions or the services that we provide in the health system in New Hampshire. We do license certain services, and then we do have the director of charitable trust as a charitable trust director, not a health policy expert, looking at charitable nonprofit transactions, healthcare transactions of a certain amount they will look at. So for example, they are looking at uh, a proposed transaction between a federally qualified health center, Health First Family Care and Mascoma Community Healthcare, where um, Health First is trying to support a, a sort of a failing clinic in very underserved areas. And these are health clinics providing primary care services to um, certain populations across our state who really need access to those services. We have a really good network of federally qualified health centers in New Hampshire providing family and primary care. Um, the transaction with Dartmouth around Valley Regional, they've been aligned and, and um, shared resources for a, for a long period of time. Valley Regional is in Claremont, very small critical access hospital, but in a very important part of our state, that Claremont region, uh, we have higher rates of poverty there, higher rates of substance use, and Valley Regional has been an incredibly strong and doing pretty well critical access hospital in that area. <clears throat> the um, alignment with Dartmouth is open for review. There's a hearing next week, next Thursday, about the community impact of this transaction. Dartmouth is becoming the parent and Valley Regional is becoming sort of a mirror governed subsidiary aligned with uh, Mount Escutney, which is a small hospital in Vermont, several miles away. And Dartmouth is ultimately the sole member of, of those both those organizations and will make the decisions about services and budget and resources. The constant theme through many of the professors I speak to on this show is antitrust when you hear about all sorts of things like this. Does antitrust have any sort of impact when it comes to hospitals and the healthcare field in this sort of way? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't want to, you know, I know that the, the struggle we have in New Hampshire is we're a small state and we have to spend our healthcare resources really carefully. We don't have a plan as to how we're doing that. We don't have a plan as to what our service system should look like. We don't have a plan as to, you know, how we're going to manage over the next 20 years as you see huge innovations. I mean, just think about the cost of the drugs coming on for obesity, right? How What's going to give in our healthcare cost structure as we go forward? 
don't know. Um, but what I would say is the the national look at antitrust, um, the Department of Justice that enforces with the FTC has put on a huge uh, enforcement effort and is changing the rules around how to look at antitrust and healthcare because they feel like these transactions are driving up the cost of care and no one is stepping in for the patient's interests and access cost and quality. Now, I, I can guarantee that the intentions for our combinations in New Hampshire are very good ones. So, but the feds really look hard at these because they haven't seen a merger yet that lowers the cost of care. <clears throat> it doesn't save administratively, it doesn't save on the cost of services. It oftentimes does a lot of good, but the question is, how do we know that? Um, so I think the feds are really trying to redefine what their oversight role is and what their standards are. Um, meanwhile, you have a lot of this burden fall on charitable trusts. In most other states, you have another type of review that actually looks at the data, looks at your answers, the questions you're asking, which is what's likely to happen? What are we gonna measure? How are we gonna determine this is in the best interests of our community, which in New Hampshire, you could argue almost, we have a statewide healthcare system. You know, I think the hospitals would say their boards are charitable boards and they really are committed to the communities, which they are. Um, so I think that's going to be a really important uh, conversation we have going forward in New Hampshire is how do we want to spend our healthcare resources because we don't have an endless supply of them. Do you think that that these sort of mergers and the this kind of what appears as, as a consumer flailing around institutions <laughs> is leading to like the kind of innovations we're seeing in the, the private sector with with healthcare where you're seeing the the minute clinics the convenient mds and these other for-profit corporations moving in and able to really explode in in this newer market yeah they are and a lot of the you know we we have now the the three for-profit hospitals, there's a lot of private equity associated with those for-profit. They don't have to do community needs assessments. They, you know, don't have any real tie to the community other than, you know, providing a good product <clears throat> to the community. So I, so they certainly um, do a lot of good. Oftentimes our HCA hospitals are top quality. Um, but what, what is unclear is, is, what then is left open for need? And you're right, private sector oftentimes steps in, may or may not be what we wanted, but it certainly does step in to fill the gap. And right now we are seeing lots of minute clinics, lots of urgent care, lots of places people can go after work, Saturdays and weekends to get the primary care they're not able to access in our health systems which is kind of filling an equity hole. Like that's a big term that's brought up a lot in healthcare sectors, equity and being able to people that are working during the day aren't able to, don't necessarily have sick time, need to go after hours in the evening till eight or 9 p.m. where some of these facilities are now open. Like it, yeah. it's gotta be a confusing thing from a health policy perspective to say, is this the outcome we ultimately want? Yeah, I think that is the question. And you know what? We really want our big systems to be able to provide good high-end specialty care and to, and to stay in the competitive market for that kind of care, we need it here. You know, at the same time, we also need mental health, substance use, primary care, and we're not getting it um, in, in our commercial 
uh, in the, our commercial space. Um, and, and so I think there's been a huge effort by the state to really figure out mental health delivery and substance use delivery, and that is planful. Um, and that involves a lot of our public programs and our Medicaid programs and our state-funded programs. It's been harder to penetrate how we manage for people who have employer-sponsored coverage um, or no coverage as to what kind of delivery system they're going to get. I would say our hospitals did an incredible job during COVID. Um, they took care of us. They worked together. They elevated their game on the, on the inpatient side to really manage what was an untenable situation and did a fantastic job. So we certainly owe our hospitals an incredible debt um, and our providers for what they did to care for all of us. And I have complete faith that we will figure this out. Um, it's just a lot of resources, you know, a lot of skills, a lot of expertise, and we don't have a great process for figuring out what we're gonna do in the future about it. Professor Lucy Hodder, Director of Health Law and Policy Programs, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact, presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help start a word about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Get the back episodes of the show and podcast links at law.unh.edu slash podcast.